Hey everybody, it's Jim Sirk. Welcome back. Appreciate you joining. Happy COVID Friday. So I thought I'd bring a little education back to the podcast and uh, I'm, I'm happy to announce that I have Rachel Armstrong back. If you recall, Rachel did a podcast, I don't know, about three months ago, introducing value-based care um, and how that is going to evolve over the next five years as fee-for-service kind of goes away and um, these quality outcomes and the value-based payment model starts to take hold, which is going to impact us. It's going to impact our hospitals and we're going to have to adapt. And so Rachel's, uh, Rachel's back and, uh, and we also have Bob Duvall and Bob has over 30 years of healthcare sales experience in pharma, healthcare technology, and most recently, healthcare consulting, where uh, Rachel and Bob work together at Premier. Um, Bob's expertise is market development and in integrating new products and technologies within a hospital, um, really the provider network. And... Um, his, uh, his work has really evolved over the years from selling directly to physicians, to integration of technology and institutional practice guidelines, and most recently with alignment in population-based care models. Wow, that's a lot to say, but that's where our healthcare system is going. So what we're going to do is, I'm, I'm really moderating this as Rachel and Bob bring us you know, some, some really valuable um, resources and knowledge. And they dive into first two things is to increase our, our, our knowledge base on value-driven market transformations. And um, then we're going to go into product and clinical knowledge in the sense of how we, as the commercial side of our organizations, have to understand what that means to our hospitals. So as we, the second part of this is we expand our knowledge base how can we begin to incorporate this into our daily work in a way that's practical and productive? And um, so we go into account management. So what does all this mean? And how do you manage the account as you're, as you're moving forward? And then uh, the next thing is using that knowledge for problem solving within the healthcare systems in which you're operating. So this is deep. This is once again, one of those podcasts that you're probably going to have to listen to twice. It's not like we don't have a lot of time on our hands. Um, I know that some elective surgeries are coming back. That's great. Um, let's make sure we're partners with our healthcare system as they go through this transformation and we need to be patient. It's not about us. It's about our customers. It's about our, the patients in which they care for. And it's about healing our healthcare system. So without further ado, let's get at it. Welcome back, everybody, to the Medical Sales Nation. It's Jim Surik. Appreciate you guys tuning in again. Um, I am excited once again to bring back for her second appearance, Rachel Armstrong. Rachel and I work together over at Osprey, as you know, and she is the, the expert in, um, uh, at least I believe she's the expert, right, at uh, healthcare economics, value-based payments, quality initiatives. Um, she works actually with, um, has been doing some work with lobbyists, uh, working with HHS. So, I mean, her experience is deep and broad. And we're going to do another podcast informative on, you know, the value-based healthcare system versus fee-for-service and quality initiatives and all that. So, Rachel, welcome back. Yeah, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, excited to uh, to rejoin and circle back where we left off to discuss this uh, value-driven market transformation that's occurred over the last few years. Um, I also have with me Bob Duvall. He's a colleague of mine from my time at Premier. He uh, led the uh, Healthcare Innovators Collaborative at Premier, as well as spent a 25-year uh, career at Merck, uh, working uh, across a wide variety of business units. Bob, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ra Rachel and Jim. It's a pleasure to, to join you today. Um, my, my background is, as Rachel mentioned, um, predominantly in pharmaceutical sales. I spent a good portion of my time at Merck in a market development role um, we managed a medical liaison team 
we, over a 12-year span, launched 10 different products. So you quickly learned how to integrate new technology into the provider's care process. Doing that, uh, I left Premier and joined Rachel, I'm sorry, I left Merck, joined Rachel at Premier in their performance service division. Uh, it was a group that was helping the health systems transition to value-based care models. Uh, our job was to educate industry around these newer models so that commercial uh, operations could adapt to uh, to the newer models coming to the marketplace. Okay, no, great. So, you know, the the last conversation that Rachel and I had, or the last podcast, was you know discussing value based care. And as I you know continue to talk on these podcasts about different issues and different things that we always need to be learning, is this value based care. Um, system that we're headed to is um, not going away. And uh, I mean, we get, we have some hiccups that we could probably talk about, Rachel, on obviously with the coronavirus, um, the healthcare system is, I don't want to say in an uproar, but is, uh, you know, is uh, on walking on eggshells right now trying to take care of this problem. And obviously HHS, CMS sees this. Um, but before we go into that, Rachel, maybe we can you could summarize, you know, the last podcast, get everybody up to speed, and then we'll dive into this. Yeah, no, that that's great. Thanks, Jim. Um, so really, where we are with COVID nineteen, and where I where I predict the health systems will go uh, once uh, things kind of uh, are wrapped up in terms of uh, folks being allowed to go back into the hospital, is that. The hospitals will be focused on protecting at-risk patients. So they're going to be focused on um, decreasing, uh, keeping those mortality rates down, uh, decreasing the patient's time in the hospital, so so decreasing the patient's length of stay, and and closely monitoring the economics behind um uh, the expenditures during the time that patient is in the hospital, there's going to be an increased level of accountability to improve the health and safety of uh, patient populations in different departments in the hospital. There's going to be a renewed focus on the patient and clinician experience, as well as overall just lowering the per capita healthcare costs with an increased focus on improved outcomes. Um, the major stakeholders uh, that will be uh, guiding this conversation are across the, the payers, providers, and the regulators. So there, there's going to be an increased focus on shared responsibility for monitoring the quality of care so that patients um, have uh, reduced risk when they enter the hospital there's going to be an increased focus on the experience of care and shared responsibility for cost and the products and services used when these patients are in the hospital. Additionally, um, the, the hospitals have been shifting from a fee-for-service to value-based payment model, given the, the Affordable Care Act that was passed in March of 2010. But this, the industry will continue to shift from a product focus to a population health focus. So, um, you know, on the last podcast, we talked quite a bit about improving the care coordination among clinicians. So that will continue to be um, an area that health systems focus on, as well as uh, just managing how do we reduce risk and prevent harm to these patients. Um, and then again, because of COVID, I did want to throw in there that the uh, the measurement for value-based payment has been suspended for January to the end of June of this year. So hospitals, as it stands now, are just focusing on how do we how do we treat these patients that have COVID or screen them if they could have COVID. And then once this passes, uh, hopefully in the next couple of months, it will transition back to how do we, as a health system, provide the best health care for patients at the lowest cost while also minimizing risk. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of information and it's very deep and it's going to impact all of us that serve within the healthcare community, whether you're uh, a manufacturer of devices, biotech, pharma, it, it really doesn't matter. Everybody's going to be impacted by this. And, um, 
you know, Bob, there's, there seems to be so much to learn, you know, about value-based healthcare and population health management. Where, where do you start with something like that? You bet. There, um, and, and I think when we look at, at the value-based movement, it does get very complicated quickly. As, as, Sarah men- as Rachel mentioned, there are four really themes to focus on. In, in the movement to value-based care. It's, it's really around clinical efficacy and safety. It's the consumer experience in the care delivery process. It's the provider's care experience in the delivery process. And then it's lowering per capita cost. So regardless of what your product or your service is, if you can start to focus in on those three areas and re- relentlessly you know, adapt your value proposition to try to improve in any of those domains, um, then then you're going to be relevant in this transition to value. And so um, you're absolutely right. It's, you know, it's it's a lot to take in at one time, but you can start to take it in smaller chunks. And what we're going to share um, over the next couple of minutes is actually, I, I, I think our commercial industry in healthcare is actually well-versed to move into this area. If you think about those four domains we just mentioned, um, I think industry does actually quite a bit in, in all four of those areas already. Um, so how do you get started? Um, we're going to talk about two different knowledge domains that you can work on over time. And then we'll, we'll also talk about two different skill domains that you can work on. So if we take a look at the first knowledge domain, it's really around your product and your clinical knowledge. And that's a base you've already built and developed. It's, it's knowing your product. It's knowing um, your product line. It's in development um, and doing the same thing with your competitors. Um, everybody today looks to you as the expert on your technology, and they'll continue to look at that moving forward. Whether a health system is, is in fee-for-service or moved to value-based care models, we're all still accountable to the product efficacy, safety, and cost. And so you'll, you'll want to continue to be that expert. As you do that, you're also thinking about the disease state that you're impacting. So you'll want to maintain deep knowledge around that disease state. Um, and many times when we would do this as an industry, we would think about, you know, the, the point that we intersect in the care delivery process and we're, in the, we're the expert in that specific area. One thing Rachel and I can encourage you to do is really start to think about the full spectrum of care that may be delivered to a specific patient population and understand the entire spectrum. Um, when you start to think a bigger picture, it's really going to help you, you know, challenge yourself and adapt your value proposition. Um, it's not just your product. It's, it's the people you can bring to bear with the care process. It's your technology. It's your understanding of process. And then it's, it's your educational resources. So you really want to start to think about how you leverage all of those assets together and deliver the best value across the care continuum. There are some resources you can think about to help with this first knowledge domain around product and clinical knowledge. It, it starts with your, your traditional corporate training programs. So they will continue to be valuable for you. But go beyond that. You know, be a student of your work. And you can do that by, um, by one looking at professional societies, clinical practice guidelines for your disease state area and know that guideline. And that will help teach you that, you know, what that continuum of care looks like. The other what would be is to, to search the published literature, particularly around critical decision points that you can help impact in a care delivery process. And so types of publications I'm typically looking for are systematic reviews, um, meta-analyses, but a, kind of a, a summary of the, the published literature around, again, critical decision points. Everything I'm doing when I'm building that base knowledge, it, it's I'm continually going back saying, how can I drive efficacy and safety? How do I make things simpler for the provider or resolve problems? Um, how do I make a good consumer experience? Uh, and then how, how does my company help lower overall cost of care? Sure. So no, so that makes that makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, from from this audience perspective, we have people that um, want to get in the healthcare marketplace that are selling commodities, that are selling implantables, that some could consider commodities, and some you know with really unique products. If based on this, I, I would 
would argue that if you're selling within the commodity space, your challenges are going to be much greater than if you're bringing something to market that can answer um, the four pillars that you laid out. Would, would you agree? It is. And if it's a truly commodity product, you can you can affect that fourth domain, which yeah. is going to be the, the per capita cost. But even with, you know, products that we thought were strictly commodity based on price, if you start to think about the fair continuum and, and start to look at different points on that continuum that you could potentially impact, it's surprising things that you start to learn um, where you can create additional value. So that's where I think industry plays really well is that innovation comes from industry. Um, and I think industry understands how to operationalize it. And I think it's on us to go in and start to look at the care delivery process and work with health systems to try to figure out how to efficiently manage that and improve, again, quality and cost. Sure. And when you're, when, when you're having these conversations within the healthcare system, who, who is involved with that? Right. I mean, there's so many people from an administrative level, from a provider level. Who are who are the the main, you know, the the main titles, I guess, that you're going to to be working with? I think and I'll, I'll take it from a different perspective. Depending on the value I can bring into a system, that will dictate who I can talk to in the system. So if I'm a point on the care process for a service line, a clinical service line, I could probably get to the service line leader if I have a good value proposition. Um, but if I have multiple points across a care continuum, I may be able to get to that service line leader, but but to someone higher up into the organization that has a little more focus on population-based management. So that could be a chief medical officer, chief nurse, nursing officer. Health systems that have adopted value-based care models now have, um, you know, VPs of population health management, VPs of innovation. So there are executive level positions that are overseeing, you know, ACOs and bundled payments. So if, if I have broader value, I can get higher up into the organization um, and speak to folks that are managing, um, again, more risk-based models. Sure. Okay. Got it. So, um, can you do me a favor? It's something we probably should have done uh, in the beginning, but what does it mean uh, population health management from you know, a hospital, independent, whether it's an IDN or independent hospital? What does that mean? You know, the, the definition in my mind is, you know, it's a, it's a provider that's taking responsibility for the the efficacy, the safety, and the total cost of the care for a defined population. There are different types of uh, population-based models. Um, and you know the, the ones we hear about all the time are accountable care organizations, which is, you know, the intent is to manage a broader, you know, um, populace, a broader, um, you know, ge geographical region of, of people. Second type are bundled payments which are a little more focused on expensive or high-end service lines. So we typically find bundled payments around surgery, oncology, cardiovascular services. So it's typically uh, an expensive service line. And then the, um, the third type of payment model are primary care models. And it's a, again, it's a, it's a risk model for primary care facilities or clinics. So we may see a system deploy one or more of these kind of models. And then in addition to that, large health systems have the ability to, to develop clinically integrated networks, which in essence allows for them to develop this loose affiliation of health systems that can share financial risk. So in the future world, you know, in the next five to 10 years, we'll probably see health systems that have deployed ACOs in, in dense markets. Um, within that, they may have bundled payment initiatives around expensive service lines. And then to capture um, you know, the, the, um, the patient market share, you may see systems are going to build business relationships with other systems regionally or nationally um, so that they can adjudicate risk by taking on larger po populations. Okay. 
All right. I mean, that's a lot. You know, it's great. It's it just shows you. Um, it, it, and like you said it, and I love the saying because I say it all the time: be a student of your game. And um, you said you, you need to be a student here. This is this is a lot of information, but it it is necessary for anybody that's going to be looking to continue to grow within our healthcare system. So, so that that's the um, the uh, knowledge domain, the first one, and um, and I appreciate that, Bob. And then Rachel, um, maybe you can talk about the second knowledge domain. Rachel? That's great. No, I appreciate it. I think um, to Bob's earlier point, the uh, the three different models, which is the accountable care organizations, which these are arrangements formed between hospital systems and health insurance companies, where the health insurance companies will offer a set amount per uh, beneficiary per month to care for a population of patients. I think that as industry, if we can understand which hospitals are focused on that type of payment or have that type of payment arrangement with different hospitals, we can, we can align ourselves from a business perspective to develop deeper relationships with the hospitals that are focused on the care of a population and a specific service line. So for example, if a hospital looks in their electronic medical record and realizes that their, their cardiology outcomes aren't good, then they can look to clinical evidence like the guidelines or these systematic studies that Bob mentioned for solutions to deploy to improve the health of those populations. Additionally, um, the primary care model that Bob referenced is, is going to continue to be part of the uh, U.S. healthcare system and that uh, health insurance companies will um, uh, likely encourage beneficiaries to select a primary care doctor who will assess their health care prior to triaging them to specialists. So there will be improved coordination among the primary uh, beneficiaries doctor and the specialist when managing the care of those patients. And then um, as far as industry goes, I think if we can align assets, which are our people who are inside of the hospitals, our product, which solves the solution, and then educating ar around what the science says, we will help physicians um, better understand what those clinical guidelines and what those quality measures show are the best way to treat the patients so that they can standardize their workflow. So anytime a patient comes in for a given procedure, they can be screened in the same standardized way every time that they come in for comorbidities and for risk factors. And that will lead to improved outcomes. And, and honestly, it will improve the safety um, and the care of those patients. Okay, so if I'm... Uh... Um, a neurosurgeon and um, or maybe that's not a good example, a cardiologist then if um, and I'm part of a hospital system, it starts, it starts in the primary care, the primary care all within that system are going to have the same process that they're going to go through in evaluating that patient. So by the time it works through the system, the cardiologist is going to be more, um, I guess, comfortable with the fact that the work has been done and, and he or she can move on to the next stage? Is, is that about right? Yeah, that's exactly right. When the patient comes in, the, the cardiologist will have a greater understanding of the, um, the comorbidities of the patient as well as potential complications that that patient could see should they undergo different types of procedures. Okay, so what if you're, um, and, and this is where I think it gets interesting, what if you're, Primary care, and it's not a lot of them today, but um, that are not employees of the healthcare system, but they're independent and or a specialist is independent. Do you, well, the question, you know, stands is that in five years, will there still be independent doctors? And, and if so, how do you coordinate that? Or how will it be coordinated? Because, you know, I've worked with, you know, surgeons, doctors for a long time and, as you know, Rachel and, and you, Bob, they'll, they'll you know, stomp their foot down if they want what they want. So how do we, 
um, or refuse to do things that they're told to do because they don't like being told what to do. How do you, how do you mitigate that? Yeah, I would say um, as it stands now, that is going to continue to be a challenge for the hospitals. But I think it there are creative ways to align incentives for those physicians that aren't employed by the hospital, um, be it aligning their comp towards providing the standardized treatment. Bob, curious on your thoughts there. So I, I do think that, that physicians will eventually either work for a health system or be contracted with a health system. It's going to be difficult to stay in an individual practice. The, um, there will also be a generational change in that I think the, the doctors coming out of training, as well as ancillary providers, nurses, and pharmacists, I think they're looking for more of that um, you know, large system, large health system work experience where they're on, you know, work, set work hours. They're not working independently on their own. Yeah. And, and the reason I ask that question, because the audience is, uh, is a, really a commercial, a commercial folks out there, marketing and sales listening to this. Um, the reason I ask the question is because going back, you know, to the, to the first knowledge domain and, and the second knowledge domain is that what you're saying is when you're developing a product, you have to keep in mind, at least this is what I'm thinking. I'm going to create a product, but it may be a cardiology product. It may be an orthopedic product, but I actually have to think about the primary care doctor and how they're going to assess certain things by the time my product or service might be used. I think that thought process and that like those four pillars that you laid out, you have to think about it um, I think from everyone that might touch the product, not that you're going to sell to everyone, but you have to put your thought process around it. Is, is that a good way to think about it or is that too much? Yeah, I think that's good. I think it's focusing on that that patient's entire journey among uh, the healthcare ecosystem. So it's thinking about prevention, diagnosis, treatment, and maintenance of life. And thinking about where does your product fit into that continuum? And prior to uh, use of your product, who does that patient interact with? And then after your product is used, who are the care extenders that that patient will interact with? So I do think that is going to be increasingly important, especially as these providers, uh, these primary care providers do interact with these specialists. It's, it's thinking a little bit outside of the box beyond just who will be using my product, who will be prescribing my product, to who else has influence in that sphere of that patient's treatment, and thinking about strategies to reach and educate those people as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's great. I want to, when we get a chance, maybe not right now, just talk about all the digital health um, companies that are being started right now, because you could see just on this conversation, how they're going to become incredibly important to be able to integrate doctors within systems together to talk to each other as they're using, you know, different diagnostic tools and um, that will record different events and, and move patients along a continuum. So anyways, um, well, I appreciate all that. I mean, this is really great stuff. So um, Rachel, as we expand our knowledge base, how can you begin to incorporate this into your daily work and in a way that is practical and we got to be productive at the same time? Yeah, so I think um, coming into the health systems and the providers you work with, with an open mind and really showing clinicians and, and hospital executives how you're helping them to solve a problem is key. So I think um, education will continue to play an important role. I think understanding where you fit in as it relates to what are the evidence-based guidelines, what are the quality measures, and I think more than that, um, really uh, having a, a thought-out strategy that moves just beyond the user of your product is key. So um, at Osprey, we actually have a strategy whereby we not only work with 
clinicians, but we also work with quality leaders who will implement quality programs. We also work with service line leaders. Um, So these are the folks that have the profit and loss responsibility from a financial standpoint, as well as an operational purview to implement and change the care process, as well as a third call point, which is finance. Because finance and value analysis will continue to become more and more involved in the decision-making and which products are used. Um, so again, I would, I would recap that to be an understanding of who are the call points, having a strategy on what the call points are, having a strategy around how you are um, improving the health of the population through uh, a play to decrease the total cost of care, and then first and foremost, improve the outcomes of the patients. Sure. So, it, you know, you, when you listen to this, it's, it's a much more complex cell. It's a business-to-business cell. And how I've seen this in my career before saying, you know what, we can uh, lower your operating room costs because your doctors are going to be able to do the procedure 20 minutes um, less in time than they have been. And there's no real data or proof around it. They might have had, you know, 10 surgeons do the procedure a couple times and said, yeah, I'm 20 minutes faster. Um, So with this type of environment that's being created, companies have to, you can't just say it, you have to prove it, right? Yep, that's exactly right. You um, You need to have large data sets or clinical studies to back what you're saying. And you need to back that uh, clinical evidence into um, your marketing materials. Yeah. So that takes time. And That's exactly right. Credit. Yeah. It's, these are long-term strategies that, you know, to be quite frank, life science companies need to already have in play or need to be putting in play. Um, there's a couple of different resources or a couple of different companies that have these large data sets around the total cost of care. And, and one of those resources is with the, the commercial payers. A lot of the commercial payers um, have their um, clinical data and cost data available for sale so that your, um, your clinical teams can work to create um, those studies alongside the payers. Um, Another place to look is the group purchasing organizations. The group purchasing organizations, um, three three of the largest, um, Premier, Vizient, and Intelier, have databases um, that they can look into to see what are the current costs and what are the current treatments, what are the current algorithms, and more than that, what are the opportunities um, that we can show hospitals their own data to say, look, we not only have a product and a solution, but we have your numbers and we have a way to help you um, through the challenger sales model. So when, I, when I'm going to my hospital executives that I work with, it's, hey, look, here is your data. Here is how I can help you bring down those costs and improve outcomes based on a scientific approach. So it's using the studies and it's also using uh, the guidelines to do that. Okay. So, so Bob... Um just your input on this. It takes a lot of time to get the data. So it's, it's a, it seems like it's a two-pronged approach. Get the hospital's data and, and dive into that, but then it takes an enormous amount of time to prove your product does what it says it does. Is, is, tell me about your experiences with that. I agree with both of you on that, that this is, this is a time-consuming process and can be expensive as well. Um, but as you start to to define your your value proposition within a population health management strategy, I think where the the commitment is, or the where the rubber hits the road is, is if you start to build your contract strategy around shared risk with both the provider and the payer. So in essence, you're going in saying, I see the care process you're working on. I understand the quality measures that you're accountable for. We think we can align with you and impact certain ones. Obviously, you would want you know data to support that you can have a positive impact on a performance measure, and then you could build a, a risk share contract around that. And that's where I think organizations will start to move away from transactional relationships 
to more of a um, collegial type relationship or a, um, a partner type of relationship. If that data doesn't exist, it's what it's what Rachel mentioned. There are other sources that could particularly, you know, possibly gain access. It could be the health system itself or it's supporting GPO. If it's not there, then, you know, the I think the backup alternative is to um, work with your own medical affairs group or your research group to collect this data. Uh, it can be done in real world time um, as real world evidence. It could be either um, concurrent monitoring of a, of a treatment strategy or it could be retrospectively collecting cases after your technology has been applied in a, a care process. Um, but you, you're, you're, you're gonna need that data one way or another. Um, it, I think the current trend is thinking about that real world evidence so um, to get that as quickly or, or efficiently as you can, once you have that, then begin to build contract strategies around that and okay. re-engage with your parent provider. Okay, so um, I just want to be clear. So I could go to one of these one of these companies that has the data, but it's not going to it's going to tell me what the hospital's data is. It's not going to tell me what my product and how it performed within the hospital system, is it? Because they're not tracking my product. I guess is what I'm asking. Does that so, make sense? It does. And Rachel may be a better person to ask this because she she has intimate knowledge of the GPO data sets. But that may actually be the case, Jim, where right that they can't track the impact of your technology on a care process. If that if that's the case, then uh, you, my fallback would be to go back to my own research, set up a treatment protocol and, and capture this in the real world. Right. Okay. Yeah, so I'll add to that. Um, the GPO data sets can, um, most of them, actually detect when a product is recorded within the charge master database. So if a pharmacologic um, agent is prescribed, that will show up in the data sets that the GPOs have. Um, as it relates to medical devices, it, it, it can be done and that um, the, the GPOs can detect when a medical device is used. Um, the, the only challenge with that, and this comes down to, is it a commodity-based product or is it um, more of a brand name product? It, it's all about how it's recorded. So if you are the only game in town with your product, it will be recorded. But if you're, for example, one of six major stent companies on the market, it might say stent or it, it may or may not have your brand name on it. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to be clear. And, and let's uh, clarify one other thing, but um, we're talking about real world examples um, versus randomized controlled trials. Tell me why um, real world examples um, or studies or, or uh, um, uh, information is going to be accepted by the FDA in the future. So the, when there's no, one no, first... Yeah. Go ahead, Rachel. No, you go ahead, Bob. I'll go after you. Well, I, I think I don't think the FDA is there yet, Jim. Um, but um, I think the healthcare system realizes it needs to improve quality in a quicker fashion than what we do today. And um, I think they also recognize that randomized controlled trials are expensive and they take a long time. So there's general consensus building that real world evidence can help drive and improve quality of care. And in fact, most quality managers within health systems are using longitudinal data to do that themselves. And so I think industry has the ability to, to tap into that work, but it is really quality improvement type of work that we're demonstrating. It's not looking for label changes. Right. The FDA. Right. No, I, no, I get it. It's, you know, it's fascinating uh, the, the way in which it's evolving and changing and thinking of, you know, real world evidence based on your product and using that um, as an opportunity to move healthcare systems. It, it's just going to help companies go faster. Right. And um, not wait for, you know, these RCTs over multiple years collecting data from 2,000 patients. I mean, that's just a, a long, expensive process. So, um, okay, so um, anything more on the, uh, the skill domain, the first one, Rachel? 
I think that's a, uh, a great question, Jim. I would just say um, additional skills overall is just really thinking about how, um, as a medical sales rep, we can provide value um, to the hospital um, overall in managing the care of populations. So that is strategic selling around what does the current science say about treating my disease state. It is providing um, hospitals uh, unique positioning around their value-based payment models, albeit um, do they have accountable care organizations looking at new call points, so working with the folks who manage the care of populations, looking at service line leaders, and then also um, doc by doc, still educating them on how your treatment is from a clinical efficacy standpoint, um, going to produce the best outcomes for the patient. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I interpret that obviously from a sales perspective saying the, the job has become much more difficult as more people are involved because that relationship that you have with that doctor could is could go away because of some some other product and some other company coming in and um, doing this total hospital sell and moving you out because of the evidence so as a rep you may not have the company that, that you're working for moving in this direction, but that still gives you an opportunity to call on these people, talk to these folks, understand where they're headed, and then share that with your company. Um, because I just, I still, I still think a lot of companies don't understand what's what's happening and what's going to continue to happen. Um, so, so with that, Bob, um, we're talking about you know two domains. Um, the first one that Rachel talked about, and the second one. Um, uh, product, problem solving. You want to go into that? Yeah. So, and, and I would caveat this up front. You have a lot of talented salespeople that listen to your podcast, Jim, that have been successful because they're really good problem solvers. Yeah. So I think this is an inherent skill set already within a sales organization. But um, the question is, how do you put it to work um, efficiently moving forward? And so, you know, I think things to think about are one, um, understand where, where your customer is in terms of their commitment to value-based programs. Um, and you can understand the different models that we described earlier by going to its, um, the CMS Innovation Center, and it's at innovation.cms.gov. They describe all the different population-based models that are in the marketplace. So it's a chance for you to, to understand the type of models your customer is moving to. The second is understand what, what is their performance measurement within a model. So you can get some of that information from the innovation center, but you can get additional information around performance measure at CMS's quality payment program website. So it's um, qpp.cms.gov. And there you can, by disease area, you can get a better understanding of the specific performance measures that they're accountable for. It's organized as quality measures, information management, performance improvement or practice improvement activities. And then the fourth domain is the uh, per capita cost for providers. And so, um, so you can start to understand the model they're in, the type of performance measures that they're in. And then, Jim, you were hinting to this a little bit earlier, particularly for marketing or brand teams. Start to think within a service line or a disease area, what does that continuum of care look like from start to end? You know, um, Rachel mentioned there are dimensions to it that include prevention, diagnosis, uh, staging of disease, treatment strategies. Um, I would include in it also palliative care and end of life. Uh, you'd be surprised at, at resources people may have in that space as well. As you start to think about that care continuum, know that your providers are going to want to standardize care as much as they can across that care continuum. And they're going to standardize it through their EHR. It's going to be by way of institutional guidelines clinical pathways. It's going to be executed through physician order entry. 
capabilities through order sets um, or, or the use of clinical decision support tools. So as much as they can standardize decision-making across a care continuum, they will do that through the EHR. And then we talked about this a little bit as well. Care is going to be delivered at different locations uh, by different healthcare providers. And so health systems that move to population-based management models will want to tighten all that up. They're really going to focus on the continuum of care, whether it be delivered in the hospital, post-acute care facilities, surgery centers, outpatient clinics, or at home. And again, I think they're going to rely on the EHR to figure that piece out. So, you know, that's kind of the backdrop of all the things that the payer and provider are working on. So from a problem-solving standpoint, you know, it's a chance for each organization, each manufacturer to really hone in on the, the disease of your interest, the performance measures that you think you can make an impact around, and um, it really start to challenge your organization around the value you can bring to that space. Rachel mentioned this earlier, value is not just your product or your portfolio, it's your people. And it's an integrated team, right? So most people have now ecosystems of different uh, expertise within a team that can bring service to a health system. So it's your people. It's it's your understanding of that process and that linkage across care sites. So how are, are there things that you can help with in terms of the continuity of care with communication, um, with handoffs? And then... Um, As you do all this, you can you can do it in a way that's that's in a, a consultative type of approach. So a lot of this is is asking questions rather than quickly jumping to prescribing or selling solutions. And so you know in that that time frame where you're trying to collect information, what you're really trying to seek is again where are there gaps, are there problems, particularly the intractable problems, the things that the payer provider have not been able to fix. From there then, you can go back with your broader marketing team and your broader ecosystem team to really start to design uh, solutions to these problems and scope it out on your end. Um, if, if, you, if you're dealing with an intractable problem, there are, there are methodologies, it's light, light frameworks that your teams can actually use to discover solutions. And so we can share two different resources today. One is called Human-Centered Design, and that's from a, an organization called IDO. They're based in Los, uh, San Francisco. And you can find more information at www.ido.com. A second resource is called Liberating Structures. And this you also can find at www.liberatingstructures.com. Both are just techniques or approaches that give you a light framework to, um, to begin to explore or discover solutions to challenging problems that no one else has brought a solution towards. The, the easier thing is if you've got a problem or a, a, a challenge that you know what the solution is to, if you know that, then the approach would be to, to move forward with a lean approach like Lean Six Sigma. Um, there's a, a whole science around implementation um, or other options called, one would be called agile methodology, methodology. But there are other formal processes in place where the, you know, if you know the solution to a problem, you can quickly deploy it into the field. I think the key in this, this problem solving approach is, is be authentic. As you walk into someone's room or office and ask for their time, it's a chance to understand their, their business model, ask questions, listen, and then become a resource. And that resource may be bringing a solution. It could be just networking or facilitating. It could help actually with design work. Um, in all of this, um, the key is to over-communicate within your organization and with your, your clients. As you do this, I think what we're going to learn is that I don't think any one company could, you know, bring the, you know, the, the, the solution to a, a clinical service line. But it's important that you start to look across the whole service line. What you're going to find are other um, commercial industry members that are on your left side and on the right side of you in that care delivery. 
And I think with time, the way we're going to enhance value is we're going to start to look at partnerships and alignments across manufacturers so that we can better work together to support that clinical service line. So to your question earlier, Jim, about, you know, if I'm a, a company that has a commodity product, I can always create more value. And it may be not just with my product, but it's in collaboration with someone on my left and right side. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that is um, really interesting, I think impactful, and great advice about you know, asking questions before really just going in and throwing up about your product, but really try to understand um, each individual hospital, as we know, even within systems are different and just really trying to understand where they're at and where your products and services come together. Now, I will, um, I, I will find it amazing if Medtronic and J&J start working together and Abbott, right? I, it would be, it would be, um, great for our healthcare system, great for our patients. Um, I look forward to that day when uh, companies, you know, sit down and start collaborating just to continue to heal our healthcare system. So, you know, I really appreciate it. So, um, you know, uh, to, to close this out, um, first off, appreciate all your time, your expertise and sharing, you know, this with the Medical Sales Nation. Rachel, anything else before we, we uh, 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 end this podcast that you'd like to share um, that we might not have covered or something you want to emphasize? Yeah, no, thanks, Jim. Um, this has been fun. I think, um, I think that this is an exciting time whereby uh, life science companies, med device and pharma companies and, and equipment companies have a really great opportunity to uh, strengthen their relationships with hospitals um, and healthcare providers by, um, by, by providing value through, through education and through really becoming that strategic partner uh, when needs arise. So I appreciate you uh, inviting me to do this with you. Sure. No, it's always a pleasure. And Bob, any parting thoughts, uh, wisdom you'd like to share? Just two, two thoughts. Um, one is, you know, we're eight years into this healthcare reform movement. It actually began in 2012 and it's still new to everybody. And so I, I would encourage people you know, you don't have to be perfect. Jump in and just start in a conversation around this. It could be simple questions and learn together. You're, you're not going to hurt yourself or your organization if you go out um, and just try to learn about it. The second thing is as you start to think about your solutions um, that you can bring to population-based management, always go back to that KISS principle. Um, it is complex issues we're dealing with. The, the simpler solution that you can bring to your, your client, the more value it has. Yep. No, I agree 100%. And, and it is interesting. And, and I think that's a great way to, to close this out is that while it is complex, we have to make it simple right? It, it, we're, we're the ones that are going to have to communicate it so we don't scare people off and even scare our own sales team off that try to keep it as simple as possible, even though these are complex problems. So um, with, the, with that and the closing remarks, I want to thank you guys again. Bob, it was a pleasure to um, have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. And Rachel, you as well. So um, Medical Sales Nation, I think this is a podcast that you will want to listen to two or three times. And some of the uh, resources that Rachel and Bob have shared, I'll put on uh, the, uh, uh, the posting on LinkedIn with this podcast so that it's easy and accessible for you to, to take a look at. So um, thanks again, Rachel. Thanks again, Bob. And until next time, Medical Sales Nation, stay safe and keep selling.